Father God, we just want to thank you again for your deep and meaningful love that you have for each person here. Lord, it's especially beautiful when it's shown in the love for a child. Lord, you, your love is so, is so much wider and bigger than we can even imagine. And when it's expressed in, in dedication like we saw this morning, it, it just moves us all. So Lord, we pray that now as we move into a passage of Scripture this morning, that we can continue to hear your voice speak to each of us and what we need to hear. That the love that you had for us when we were children continues uh, to whatever age we are now. May we continue to grow to know you more each and every day of our lives, just as we pray that same for Elisha. Whatever we brought into, the, brought into church this morning, Lord, may you speak into that. May the words that we read not be words that were just written thousands of years ago, but words spoken to us because your spirit here, is here amongst us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. So if you've been with us for, for this year, for the year of 2022, we've been working through the book of Matthew, and we're going to continue to do that this morning. Now, it's interesting where we landed uh, based on uh, having a dedication service and things like that, and we landed in a really interesting spot. Um, usually, when I sit down to write a sermon, one of the things that I'm thinking about is, is how do you get a, an early hook, right? How do you capture people's attention so that you, you know, nobody dozes off right at the beginning? Sometimes I still see it in the back, but most, no, I'm just kidding, no, that's not true. But we're trying to look for something to grab your attention, and granted, sometimes it goes really well and sometimes it doesn't, but today, the hook wasn't that hard uh, because it comes right out of the pages of Scripture itself. So you want to follow along in your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 12 today, uh, verse 30, starting Matthew 12, verse 30, which says this, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, people will be forgiven of every sin and blasphemy, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Like I said, a perfect dedication passage, right? <laughs> Doesn't feel like it right now. We'll get there by the end, I promise. Don't worry. Uh, but it's a, it's a really ominous passage, isn't it? I actually thought... And then I thought it was really a little too cheesy to actually read it again a second time with some ominous music behind me just to set the tone. Um, might have been good, but we, we, we decided to scrap that part. But this particular passage, that one, this one here, has caused a lot of people a lot of anxiety over the years. It's, it's known popularly as the unforgivable sin. Have you guys heard about that one before? So if you've been in the church for a little while, maybe you've heard that. If you're new to the church, you're probably wondering what's going on here. Um, but inside of church circles, this was called the unforgivable sin. And so it, it, it makes people scared because they start to wonder, what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that there's a, something that you can do that there's no coming back from? Because if that is what he's saying, that's terrifying. What if you accidentally blaspheme the Spirit? What does that even mean to blaspheme the Spirit? What if you did it when you were young and you didn't mean to, but now you've changed entirely? What if you did it and didn't know you were doing it? What, are you then just out of luck and now are condemned to hell forever? Those are some terrifying thoughts, aren't they? But if you've been around Harbor Life for any amount of time, you know 
that, we, that we're going to do a deep dive into this question, you know that the context of our passage is going to matter a whole lot. Questions like, what kind of situation is Jesus speaking into when he says this? Who is he speaking to? Why is he addressing it? And, and how do we understand even what forgiveness is in this particular passage? Now, I want to try something new this morning based on a suggestion one of you guys, one of you gave me last week, um, that when we're in more obscure passages like this one, uh, somebody had mentioned that if you just had an outline of where we were going, it was Seth, I was looking at him, that's why, then it would be easier to follow all the way around. Sorry, Seth, called you out. Yeah. I, and so I want to try that this morning. Let me know if it works for you. But this is where we're going to be going this morning as we work through this passage. We're going to begin by just talking about what forgiveness is all about. What is forgiveness? My numbering got weird there. Sorry. Well, that doesn't help make it any clearer, does it? I've got an I for no reason. I've got a D for no reason and a K. Huh. Yeah. So moral of the story. Hey, build an outline so it makes it clear and then do that. Oops. But anyway, where we're going to go is we're going to walk through what is forgiveness. Uh, we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer and the Unmerciful Servant. We'll talk a little bit about what kingdom means. We're going to talk about heart gates, which will make more sense later. Uh, from there, we're going to move into, back into our passage, where we are in Matthew. What are we going to be talking about there? What's going on in that space? We'll finally then come back to the unforgivable sin and end with a now what? Why does it matter? Okay? That's the pathway of where we're going. Hopefully that's helpful. I'll throw that up a few more times. Hopefully not as convoluted as that. I do have like four slides, and I don't know if they're all messed up. I didn't realize that one was either. But let's get started then. So the hard part is when you actually put an outline up, now I have to actually stick to it because you guys will hold me accountable to it. So if I don't, I'm going to be in trouble. But let's begin with the first thing we've got up there. Let's talk about forgiveness. Now, if we're going to have any chance of understanding what this passage means, it's going to begin uh, by understanding what Jesus means uh, when he says forgiveness. Now, granted, forgiveness in it in and of itself, is a massive topic. And we're going to only touch on it today. Later on in Matthew, actually, when we get to the unmerciful servant part of Matthew, we'll do a whole week on forgiveness and really break down what it looks like to forgive one another. Um, forgiveness between two people is a really difficult thing. It's got a lot of nuances. We want to spend a whole week there. But today, we're going to come at it from a little bit different angle. Earlier this year, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount comes in the beginning of Matthew 6, in or the beginning of Matthew starting in 5 and goes through 7. And in chapter 6, Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, which we all love, but then it ends in a really weird way if you actually read it out of Scripture. Because the last line of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is this. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins which we realize we like to skip that part because it sounds eerily close to the unforgivable sin, doesn't it? The same kind of idea that if you don't do this, then this won't happen. So what do we do with both of those things? Well, there's one other passage that can help us understand this too, and it's the passage of the unmerciful servant. Maybe you know this, a parable. Again, we're going to break it down in more detail later on. But Jesus tells a parable later on in Matthew about a guy who has a massive amount of debt to a king. He goes to the king and he begs to be forgiven of his debt, and the king forgives him his debt. He then, this man then goes out to somebody who owes him significantly less than what he owed the king, demands payment, and ends up throwing him in jail. This passage ends this way. Matthew 18, 32, Then the master called in the servant, says, You wicked servant, 
I canceled all your debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy then on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owned. This is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive a brother or sister from your heart. Sooner or later, we're going to get to a place where we can have a dedication service and these passages at the same time. Now again, we'll talk through this more in the future, but all three of those passages, you can see why there's an anxiety that's created. Those are really scary passages. They, 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 may, if, they, they make all of us, all of our blood pressure rise a little bit because most of us probably have moments in our lives where we haven't forgiven someone well. We probably had moments in our life where, where we've, we've really disliked someone and worried that maybe we haven't forgiven like the ends of the Lord's Prayer. Maybe even some of us had t- times in our life in which faith wasn't a big part of us and so we're actually worried that we may have blasphemed the Spirit. So what do we do with all of those pieces? In order for us to begin to understand how to put the pieces back together, we have to remember what one of the key passages is when we were trying to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Does anybody know, we've said it almost every week in this series, what is one of the key passages for the key understanding that we have before we start the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus' words of what? Hoping somebody knows, otherwise they did a bad job. What are the first words that Jesus preaches in the book of Matthew? Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. Awesome. No, yeah. We've said, we said it lots of weeks in a row. Um, I'm glad. We, you all knew that. I just, you just didn't want to say it out. I know that, right? Reese did. I was expecting, you know, we're good. But in the beginning of the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus' ministry begins with this declaration. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is all around you. And, we saw, and we, each week, we, what we've said is that that, key, that understanding, that phrase is key to understanding so much of what comes, back up, comes up in Matthew later on. So just to, if you haven't been with us, that, that phrase can be a little bit confusing, but it's actually a beautiful invitation into something better. So Jesus makes the declaration, repent, what he's saying is to turn. You're heading in one direction, away from the kind of life that God wants for you, and turn back towards it. That's what repent means. And he says, because there's this kingdom life that's all around you, and I want to invite you into that space. Now what's tricky is that many of us grew up believing that the kingdom of heaven is something that's just far away, right? That kingdom of heaven is a place you go after you die. Who grew up with that understanding, right? What we've been talking about all through the book of Matthew is Jesus' declaration is that, well, it is a place that's far away. It's also a place that we can experience right now. Jesus is going to tell a parable later on in the book of Matthew about how their wheat and weeds grow together, that God has sowed the kingdom, this kingdom wheat in the world, and yet the enemy still exists. So the two things coincide together. That's what we're talking about. Now, it is crucial for us to understand that the kingdom of heaven, while it is something that goes into eternity, also is something that exists now, because we can't understand what he's talking about either in any of the forgiveness passages we've looked at without that key understanding. Because if heaven is just a faraway place, then the passages we read are terrifying. What if we die before we've forgiven everybody? Well, then the only conclusion is if heaven's a faraway place, then we don't go there. But we saw throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the kingdom being all around us all the time, not just something in the future. So our question then for today, the key question of how we're going to understand all of this is asking, what is the relationship between forgiveness 
and experiencing the kingdom life here and now? The answer to this question will help us frame the rest of what we're looking at. So what is Jesus declaring when he announces that the kingdom has come? Well, he shows us throughout his ministry, doesn't he? He spends time reconciling people to God, teaching them how to understand who God is. He also spends time healing people's hurts and pains, teaching them to reconcile with each other as well. All throughout his life, we see him helping people understand how to love God and how to love each other, right? The kingdom announcement is a declaration that God will be reconciled to his people through Jesus. It's the foundational understanding of what kingdom life is, that we are separated from God by our sin and Jesus is working to bring in the kingdom and reconcile us back to God. So then in other words, you can't talk about the kingdom without forgiveness and reconciliation. The kingdom at its core is that. God reconciling us to himself and God reconciling us to each other. So then let's begin, let's apply that then to the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive yours. The Lord's Prayer falls into this same declaration that the kingdom of God has come. Actually, it begins in the Lord's Prayer by saying, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. That may earth become a place that mirrors the kind of relationship we're supposed to have with God now or that God has with, this, with, with himself and with the angels. And that, that, kind of, that kind of reconciliation moves throughout history. So what Jesus is saying then in that passage is that if you want to be part of this kingdom life, but you're unwilling to forgive others, then you don't actually want to be part of the kingdom life at all because you don't understand what it is. The kingdom life is the kind of life in which God is inviting all people into it. And so if we're unwilling then to do any work towards reconciliation, we miss it because we don't even understand what it is at its core. In other words, if you want to experience the flourishing life of, that God is offer, offering, then inherent to that understanding is that God is reconciling all people to himself. That is the kingdom life. Actually, if you want a really great resource to kind of help you wrap your mind around all of these different things, N.T. Wright has a podcast, If Chuck, that one, this one here. Um, and just, it was really nice because this one just came out and I had to do this message and N.T. Wright's super smart. So I just took a lot of it. So we're gonna do that this morning. Uh, but when N.T. Wright is talking about this, he actually sums up what we just said this way. He said, we all have a gateway in our hearts, which, it can, which can open up to receive God's love and forgiveness. And it's the same gateway from which we give love and forgiveness to others. So he says, if we decide then to shut the gate so we, do not, so we don't give love and forgiveness to others, he would say what Jesus is teaching is that then we cannot receive the love and forgiveness of God. He would argue it's the same gate. Does that make sense? So when, when God is declaring that if we don't forgive others, we won't be forgiven, what, what N.T. Wright is arguing is that in this particular space, the, 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 the way that we have access to God's love is the same way that we love each other. That if we're unwilling to love each other, then that door is shut and we can't experience God's love in the way that he intended us to. We tracking? We'll miss out on the kingdom life if we're unwilling to open up our hearts to each other because it's inherent in what it is. Hold on to that thought. 
Because when we move back to Matthew 12, which is the next part of our understanding, how does this relate to the unforgivable sin that talks about us between each other? I'll give myself a mental high five for staying on the outline too. Good for me. Just kidding. I don't know. So we're not going to read all of Matthew 12 for the sake of time, but it's really important to understand what's going on in this passage. Kind of the key of the beginning of Matthew 12 here is this. It says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him, so he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So what's going on in this passage? Kind of paraphrase how we got to the place we got in Matthew. We have a large group of people, and Jesus had been doing miracles in the region. Actually, we looked at the guy who had his shriveled hand uh, healed last week. This happens right before this story. So people in the region know that Jesus is a healer, and actually we're, we're in Galilee, so we have both Jews and Greeks. And so they bring him someone who's possessed by a demon, which I understand also opens up another huge can of worms, which we'll have to tackle a different day. But they bring him this man, and he heals him. And the crowd is astonished, and all of the regular people decide that maybe he actually is God. When they ask the question, is this the son of David, what they're saying is that, is he the Messiah that was supposed to come? When they see him cast out these demons, something in their mind shifts and they start to actually open up to the possibility that he might be something bigger than they thought. Now, one other quick point, but a quick but important point to point out here is that Jesus makes it clear, as well as all the gospel writers, that when he's performing miracles, he performs them through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's easy for us in our minds to think that, well, Jesus is both man and God, and so then he has... Jesus' powers? Maybe that's a weird way to say it, but hopefully you know what I mean, right? And while he does, we're told in Philippians that he decides to set those aside until he's glorified, which I know is a tricky concept. We'd be happy to explain that more later on. And what we see throughout his ministry, though, is that in order to perform his miracles, he lets the Holy Spirit work through him. It's actually very clear in the Gospels. If you ever wondered why it was weird that the devil, uh, one of the temptations of Jesus was the devil asking him to turn stones to bread, Um, why would that be a bad thing? Uh, What the devil was trying to do is get him to use the Jesus part of his power, which he wasn't supposed to do. The Holy Spirit wasn't calling him to that space. So it would have been then wrong for him to do that. So all throughout Scripture, we realize that the miracles that Jesus does is the power of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus actually then goes on to say to his apostles, later on, that same power will fill you and you'll be able to do the same kinds of things. It actually is a promise that he says will continue all the way through to today, which again is another Big topic for a different day. So when people see Jesus do a miracle then, they, they're, they're, what they're watching is the power of the Holy Spirit working through Jesus. And when regular folks see that, they move a little bit closer to God. They gain a deeper understanding of who God is in that space. But the Pharisees have a different reaction, don't they? They see Jesus' work through the Holy Spirit and they attribute it to whom? The devil. And that's what kicks off this long rebuke that Jesus has in Matthew 12. You have a group of people that are literally seeing the work of God before their eyes in a tangible way, and they're giving credit to the devil because of it. Right? If sin is missing the mark, which we talk about often, it's hard to miss that mark any wider, isn't it? Now, our temptation 
in this particular section would be to say, well, it's okay, so if you miss the mark that badly, well, that's blaspheming the Spirit, and that then condemns you to hell forever. Don't do that, though. That's not what Jesus is saying. See, we need to remember what we saw earlier in Matthew. The relationship of, to forgi- uh, the relationship that, of forgiving one another uh, that's inherent in the kingdom life. The heart's gate stuff that we talked about, that, that the same gate opens up both sections. Because this is the next step of that same idea. And I'll actually let, just let M.T. Wright finish the thought. What he says is the people are looking at the work of the Holy Spirit and declaring it to be the work of the devil. Like forgiveness, then, you're slamming the door on whether that love can actually reach you. If you look at the work of God and declare that it is the devil, you're slamming the door on the possibility of love and forgiveness of the Holy Spirit reaching you. If you literally have eyes to look at what God's doing through the Holy Spirit and you say, that's the devil, you're preventing God's love from actually reaching you. You're pushing a barrier in there. And so how he finishes it this way, he says, it's technically unforgivable, not because there's a sliding scale of potential forgivableness, And this one just happens to fall off the end of it, he says. Rather, because if you look at the work of the Holy Spirit and say that that must be the work of the devil, then there's literally no hope because the hope comes in precisely the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a complicated idea. Try to spend a minute wrapping your mind around that. What what, what N.T. Wright is saying, what Jesus is saying here, is that if you can't actually acknowledge the work of God in your life or refuse to or actually attribute it to the enemy himself, You've shut the door for the Holy Spirit to do the transforming work in the life that you need him to do. It's not about an instance in which you made, uh, in which you made a bad decision and now hopefully now you're just hosed forever. That's not about that. It, but it is saying that if you're not going to actually let the Holy Spirit work in you, you can't experience God's love. And so then, where do you go from there? So you don't need to live your life afraid you've accidentally committed the unforgivable sin because that's not how it works. In Jesus, all your sins are covered. What Jesus is saying here, though, is if you reject the work of God right before your eyes, you're slamming the door on being able to experience his love and the hope that comes from that. If you see the movements of God and attribute them to the devil, you have made it impossible to experience all that God has to offer. See, this isn't about God getting ready to throw a lightning bolt at you if you blaspheme the Spirit. That's Zeus. We already talked about that, not God. It's about God letting us know that we have the power to reject him in the life that he wants for us. Does that make sense? The declaration that God gives us is that I, he, he says, I'll be there for you, but I'm not going to force myself into your life. And so I've actually then given you the power to slam the door shut on whether you experience my love or not. And one of the ways to do that is to completely reject the work of the Spirit in your life right in front of your eyes. So let's put a little bit of handles on this. What do we do now? What do we do with all of that? First, before anything else, if you're here this morning wondering if you have a place in the kingdom, I want to say clearly and definitively you do. There's nothing that you could have done at any point in your life that would separate you from the love of God. It's the beautiful passage we see Paul talk about in Romans. That neither life nor death, angels nor demons, nothing can separate you from the love of God. So if you're here this morning and and you needed to hear that, I pray that that sinks in for you. Even if your life, you were the the most vile of anti-religious, anti-God people that has ever lived, 
you are still invited to be part of the kingdom. Letting that sit then, the unforgivable sin then scares us because we believe there's something we can do to make God love us less. And Jesus' declaration throughout Scripture, along with Paul and Peter and John, is that there isn't anything you can do to make God love you less. What this passage is saying, though, is that there are things that we can do that prevent us from experiencing God's love in our lives. If you want to experience the kingdom life here and now, if you want to experience more of God's unchanging love, it requires you to take an honest look at your heart gates, which is N.T. Wright's idea. It requires us all to look at our lives and ask the question, are there places in your life in which you've shut the gate to God's love and action in your life? Because honestly, if we're all going to take a look at those things, the answer is probably yes. Maybe you're here this morning with hate on your heart for someone or a group of people. And so the question is, is it possible then that that's preventing you from experiencing more of the kingdom? I've shared with a lot of you often that for a good portion of my life, I held hatred towards someone. And I can tell you from that experience, there was a whole, there was a whole range of things that God had for me that I had no idea of because I was holding on to that space. I'd shut off a portion of my heart from God's love getting anywhere near it. And so the challenge this morning when we look at the passage that Jesus says is, are you doing the same? Like we've already said, God's love for you doesn't waver, but it also doesn't force its way in. Have you shut your eyes to God's work in your life? Perhaps you haven't actually attributed the work of, the God, work of God to the devil, but maybe you haven't actually attributed it to God either. Maybe God has been working in your life day after day after day and we don't have eyes to see. We've closed them. And so then we haven't experienced what that love does to us. God's love for us does not waver. It also does not force its way in. We need to open our hearts to accept it. We have to realize that the kingdom life is all around us, but it's all about reconciling ourselves to God and reconciling ourselves to each other. And if we refuse to do that, we're going to miss out on something beautiful. So God's love is all around you. It's available to you if you want it. But it does require work. To experience it in the way that he desires for you does require work on your part as well. So in this next week, I just want to challenge you all to ask, ask the question, what would it look like for you to just take one step in this area? Maybe it's a simple step. Maybe your step is just to spend some more time searching your heart to see if there are gates that you've shut. Don't downplay the importance and the difficulty of that step alone. Usually the places in which our heart is shut is surrounded by a whole bunch of pain, right? That's why we shut it off in the first place. The reason I held hatred was because of things that were done to me. And so I just wanted to leave that over here in the corner and never look at it again until the day I was forced to take it out and realize how tender it was. It hurt at first and experienced the love of God later. So maybe your first step is just that, is to take a look at yourself and say, where have I shut myself off to God's love? Where have I shut myself off to him working in my life to change me in some way? For others of you, maybe you're here this morning 
and you already know exactly where that gate is. You've shut it a long time ago and you put it in the corner and you don't want to look at it and you don't want to pull it out. And so the feeling that you have right now is, please don't make me. Well, no one will. It's up to you. It's your choice. But like we saw in this passage and like we see often, if we're not willing to actually pull it out and let God see it, we're going to miss out on some of the beautiful things he has for us. So maybe your challenge this week then is just taking a step towards opening that gate again. Perhaps you need to take the first step in forgiving someone you're holding hatred towards. Perhaps you just want to more actively look for God each day. Opening that box might be just as simple as, as having eyes to see the blessings that God, God's given you throughout the day. It might be as simple as spending five minutes in prayer each day or just spending 10 minutes in the Word three times a week. I don't know, wherever God might be calling you. It might be that simple. Maybe that's a way just to, to realize that God's goodness is in your life and have eyes to see it. Maybe it's something harder, though. Maybe it's realizing that there's something that you, that, 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 that's beginning to own you. Maybe it's a habit or a destructive thought process. Are willing to take that out and look at it, too, to open that gate again for God's love in this space. So often we don't like to take those things out because they feel condemning, right? That's why this passage was scary. But the invitation is not towards condemnation or away, even away from condemnation. The passage is an invitation to step away from something that's shut and bring it open again. Throughout Scripture, as we saw this morning in dedication, God's love is unending and unchangeable for all of us. He wants so badly to invite all of us near to himself so we can experience this flourishing life that he has for us. But he's not going to force his way in. He'll, he, he won't give up on you, but he wants you to open those doors. Jesus says in the book of John, I've come that you may have life and, to, and life to the fullest, and that's there for you if you're willing to do the work of seeing the areas in which you may have shut him out. Which brings us all the way back to Jesus' first words of preaching in Matthew. If you want to experience the kingdom, hear those words, which Jesus says, repent. Turn away from the places in which you've shut God out, because the kingdom is all around you if you have eyes to see it. In just a few minutes, we're going to take communion. Communion is, I, I love that communion falls on a week like this. I love, it, I love that communion comes at a week that we've done dedication, that we've seen that God's love is unending and unchanging whether we know him or not. Because communion is, is, the, is, the, is a practice of us remembering how much God loves us. Paul says in the book of Romans that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Communion is the practice in which we get to see that, that even if we've shut God out for years and years and years, his love is still big enough to care for us, to die for us, to redeem us, to try to reconcile us back with God. And so as we come to the table today, come with that in mind. As you take communion today as a family, if you come up as a family, well, in just a minute I'll invite you to come up as a family unit um, and then take one plate and then bring it back to your seats and spend some time reflecting um, before you take communion. But 
What I want to challenge you to reflect on today is that it, it is, is, is just what we talked about. That Jesus' love is on display here in communion, so where are the areas in which you've kept him out? And then take communion to realize that his body and blood broken and shed for you cover all of that and invite you into a new day today. So communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. The declaration that we need Christ in our lives. And also the declaration that we need each other too. Because the fact of the matter is no one here is sinless. Each of us has fallen short. Each of us have failed in one way or another. And communion is our reminder that our failure is not what defines us in Christ, but yet are invited into a better, fuller life. Communion is our reminder that Christ has defeated death, and because of that, sin is no longer our master. And so today, our table is open to anyone who wants to affirm or reaffirm their acceptance of Jesus' gift in their life. So our table is open to anyone who wants to accept the gift of Christ's love for them and begin following him today or re-following him today. So like I said, in just a minute, I'll invite you guys to come forward. You can come up the center uh, and you'll come here and grab, take the elements back to your seat and reflect on what we've talked about. <clears throat> so as you come to the table, I want th to invite those of you who've chosen to follow Jesus Christ or want to make that choice for the first time today. If it's not you, feel free to remain in your seat. That's fine. You can just even maybe reflect on what we talked about today. Because at the table, there is no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But at the table, Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now hear these words from Luke twenty-two fourteen. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And then he said, take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took bread. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, remember the deep love that I have for you. And remember me. Likewise, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood, a sign of the new covenant, shed for you because of the deep love that Jesus has for you. He says, when you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just want to thank you again for your never-ending love for us. Lord, we also just want to acknowledge, acknowledge this morning that, that many of us have shut you out of places in our lives. 
that we've refused to allow your love to penetrate into different areas in our lives. And because of that, we've missed out on the kingdom life you have to offer. God, we pray for, for a few things this morning then. First, for wisdom and eyes to see where, where those areas may be. God, show us where in our hearts we've, we've kept ourselves from knowing who you are. But then, God, we also realize that often those places are covered and surrounded by pain. So we pray as well that you give us the courage then to open ourselves up to the possibility that there might be something better out there for us. Give us the courage to take whatever step you might be calling us to to get closer to you and closer to your people. And finally, we, Lord, we pray for the peace that you give that, that, that surpasses understanding so we can experience the joy of your never-ending love for us. Amen.